Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. We're going to read our first uh, scripture reading, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings? And then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Did everybody have an okay Christmas? Okay New Year? Good. All right, we're going to... Be reading from Revelation 21, 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. So now that we're through Advent, we're on the other side. We're back to our sermon series, Church and State, the rise of early Christianity. Do you all remember the byline, the way that I would like put it out there every week? So we're learning about the history of the early church, the documents in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century? So in November, that's where we left off, and with that last sermon in this series, I told you that the church was in a bit of free fall. 
During the first part of the series, we dealt from 30 to 70 AD, the first 40 years of the church's history. And by the late 60s, things were not looking so hot for the early church. The church in Jerusalem, the church that was founded by James, Jesus' brother, it, uh, it was not doing so well. And the reason why is because the Jews, they had stopped coming to this church. They had turned away from Jesus' movement. And then you have Paul's churches, all these churches out in the Mediterranean. They're not doing so well either. Because most of his churches, they are falling into chaos. And then you have to add on to all of this that by 70 AD, most of the early leaders in the church, most of the people who had run the church, Peter, James, Paul, they're all dead. And so all of a sudden, the church is kind of flatlined. They're dead because the fact is that you have all these churches, they're all over the place, but they have no centralized leadership anymore. They don't know how to move forward. If you had been there in 70 AD and you were an observer of this, you would have said, well, they gave it a good shot, you know, like most businesses that last about 40 years, like that's about the amount of time that they made it, and you would have said, well, they're going to be a footnote in the pages of history. But that's not what happened. The second part of this series is designed to tell you how the church rose out of the ashes of total and complete destruction. They should have been down and out. They should have been done. But there were a number of factors that aligned that allowed them to survive. We talked about one of those factors in the last sermon that I preached, and that was that Paul, who we talked about quite extensively during the first part of this series, remember he writes all these letters to his churches? Well, those letters, they become the foundation for the second generation of churches. So those second generation, they end up using all these letters in order to help them find a way forward. But in order to understand why these letters become so important, we have to look at the second part of this series from 70 to 90 AD. That's the second generation. This 20-year period is the second generation of Christians. And they're going to help us to understand why. We're not going to be talking about Paul's letters, by the way. That's not going to be anything that we're really going to be discussing. But we're going to look at the circumstances that allow his letters to become so important. And so if we're looking to 70 to 90 AD, we've got to start in 70. And 70 is a big year, a really big year, because it's in 70 AD that the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman army. The war between the Jews and the Romans, it's one of the most pivotal events in the history of Judaism. And it also has to be one of the most pivotal events in the history of Christianity, though most of us don't know it. So we actually read about this. The scripture that you heard Judy read, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. Jesus walks out of the temple, and he, his disciples are there with him. And he turns around and he says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, there's some contention among New Testament scholars as to whether or not Jesus actually said this. Those who argue that Jesus did say it, they will sit there and they will say, well, this was a prophecy that Jesus said. Because Jesus dies when? When do we say? What's the round date? 30, right? And then the temple's destroyed in what? 70. So you're talking about a distance of 40 years. So if he did say it, that's a 40-year prophecy in the future. However, if Mark wrote his gospel around 70 shortly after the destruction of the temple, which happens to be the view of most New Testament scholars, then Mark is placing this prophecy in Jesus' mouth. Now, whether or not Jesus actually said it, it doesn't really matter because the fact is, 
the temple was destroyed. And so I want to tell you the story of what transpired, the events that occurred that actually caused the destruction of the temple, because this is very important for what we're going to be talking about from this point forward. Okay, so are we ready for this? All right, we're here. I can tell everybody's a little tired. We haven't been in church in the same way for a couple of weeks. Okay, so before we get to 70, we have to start in 66 AD. We've got to go four years before. Because in 66, what happens is there's a group of people out in Jerusalem, and they're protesting the heavy taxation of the Roman Empire. They're protesting in the streets, and so what happens is the Roman government, they decide that they're going to send in soldiers, and the first thing that they do, these soldiers, they go into the temple, and they rob the temple treasury. So that would be the equivalent of soldiers from the United States Army coming into our church and taking your collection that you had given to the church and saying, hey, this is ours now. And the reason why they did this is because they say, well, if you don't want to pay your taxes, we'll just take it from you in other ways. Then the soldiers, they go back out into the streets, they find the protesters, and they end up slaughtering all of them in the streets, some 6,000 people. Now this violence, it provokes a full-scale rebellion. The Jews, they're like, you know what? We're done. We've had enough of this, and we're going to fight against you now. And so what happens is, from 66 to 70 AD, for the next four years, they're going to be engaged in guerrilla warfare with the Roman army. The leaders of these guerrilla battles, they called themselves the Messiah, many of them. Now, why do they call themselves the Messiah? Well, what is a Messiah? If you were here, I like said it ad nauseum like a thousand times, right? Like, what is the Messiah? A king who raises an army and fights against the powers of the Roman government. And that's exactly what they were doing. The problem is there wasn't just one Messiah. There were a bunch of people who were Messiahs. And these Messiahs, they started not only fighting the Roman army, but they started fighting each other. Because everybody was saying, hey, I'm the real leader of the Jewish people. And you can see a reference to this in what Jesus says. When Jesus says, many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. That's a reference to all of those messiahs who are out there trying to say, hey, I'm the real leader of the Jews. So these leaders, they're, they're leading these peasants pretty much in these battles. And actually, early on, the Jews do really well. They actually go up against, in 66, they get into a battle with the Roman army, and they beat them, which was really impressive to them and really shocking to the Roman government. So the Roman government, they decide, you know what, okay, we're going to up our game. So they send in a very experienced general named Vespasian. Vespasian. And what he does is he brings with him his son Titus, he's the second in command, and 20,000 troops. So they start off in Galilee. That's where they're going to be. They're going to be up in the north of Galilee. And they very, very quickly crush that revolt. Because you just imagine, like now you have a really experienced general with troops coming in. It doesn't take them long. And so what happens is they start pushing them south towards Jerusalem. And they're going to push the rebels further and further back until eventually the rebels are inside of Jerusalem. And this is when the battle comes to a standstill. Because once they are inside of Jerusalem, they have a bit of a tactical advantage. Because Jerusalem is built on on top of a hill. And 
It also has huge fortifications all the way around it. Very, very well fortified walls. And so essentially, they come to a stalemate very quickly. And for the next year, there is no movement. Basically, everybody's locked inside of the city. And then what happens is Vespasian, who is, who, who is Vespasian? He's the general leading the Roman army, right? He gets called back to Italy, to Rome, because basically what happens is Emperor Nero dies, and they start to devolve into civil war, and they're like, hey, Vespasian, can you come back and help us out with this? And so he leaves his son Titus in charge of the battle. And Titus, once he's in charge, he has a very, very different tack that he takes. He has a very different strategy. He's like, you know what? We're not going to take these guys on in one-to-one, man-to-man combat. We're going to starve them to death. So what he does is he orders his troops to surround the entire city with another wall. They literally build an entire another wall around the outside of the city. This way nobody can get in and nobody can get out. Now initially, the Jews are able to circumvent this wall because there's tunnels that have been built underneath of Jerusalem years and years ago, for hundreds of years. And so they're able to get supplies and arms and food, all this stuff into the city. But eventually, as you can imagine, the Roman army figures this out. And once they block off all of those underground tunnels, that's when things get really bad very quickly. Because you can imagine how dire the situation would have become as they quickly ran out of food. By 70 AD, by the summer of 70 AD, most of the population of Jerusalem had starved to death. And then that's when the Roman soldiers, they broke through the wall. You can see that wall up there at the top. That wall is what they broke through, and they started to make their way in. But you can see that there's actually other walls too. So they couldn't just make their way into the city initially and take it all over. It took them a while. But as they went through, they systematically burned the city to the ground, and anybody who hadn't died from hunger yet, they killed them. Eventually, they make their way to the very top of the hill, which is Herod's temple. It's right there at the top. And the last remaining Jews are locked inside of that temple. And they set the temple foundation on fire, burning all of those people alive inside. The entire building comes down to the ground. The only part that is left is what is known as the Western Wall. This is what you can go see. You can still see it to this day. It's more pejoratively known as the Wailing Wall. And so that is the only part of the original temple that is left from that battle that occurred 2,000 years ago. Shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem, Titus' father, Vespasian, remember he's back, where is he? He's in Rome. Remember he's fixing that? He gets named emperor. Because he ends up fixing this whole problem. They say, you take over. And he says, okay, no problem. So he takes over. And because of the way that the Jews acted, he outlaws Judaism and says, look, if you're going to be Jewish, you've got to pay me a tax. If you don't pay the tax, I'm going to put you in jail. And then he makes his own, his own personal vendetta to go in there and erase any trace that the Jews had ever lived in Jerusalem. He orders the Roman government to start building a city on top of the ruins. And by 135 AD, there's an entirely new Roman city that's there. And if you look at the Roman maps that, are, that have like all of the Roman Empire on it, they have erased the name Jerusalem 
from all of those maps. You can't find it on any of the official maps of the Roman Empire. I cannot emphasize to you enough just how devastating this event was for the Jewish people. The equivalent for us would be if somebody drove into Washington, D.C. and detonated a nuclear bomb. It would throw our society into total, complete chaos, and our identity as Americans would no longer function. Yes? Okay. We'd have to reassess everything about who we are. We'd have to rethink, retool, and rebuild our entire society. And that's essentially what happens with the Jews. But you know what they struggled with most? What they really had trouble with in trying to figure out what they were going to do? What they struggled with most was the fact that God did not intervene to save them. This was a huge, huge thing for them. Many people believed while this war was going on that God was going to intervene in the same way that God intervened in Exodus. Remember in Exodus, right? The Israelites, they're in slavery in Egypt, and God intervenes with the miracles and gets them out. Many people thought, God's not going to let us die. God's going to come in. God's going to save us. But that's not what happened. God didn't intervene. God didn't save them. And none of those messiahs turned out to be God's chosen one. Now, it's at this point that I need to bring up something that I've neglected to mention all the way up until this point, which is that along with the destruction of Jerusalem and along with the destruction of the temple, you know what else was destroyed? The mother church in Jerusalem. That was wiped out as well. So the church that James, Jesus' brother, built, gone, totally destroyed. We don't often think about that, but that's a big deal. It ceases to exist, which also means that the Christian mission to the Jews, that ceases to exist. And so what you have to appreciate is that from this point forward, from 70 AD onward, the number of Jews who are part of Jesus' movement, what's going to happen to them? Less and less and less, until eventually a few decades from now, from 70... There's not going to be barely any Jews who are part of Jesus' movement. But in 70 AD, you still have a lot of Jews who identify as being part of Jesus' movement. And these Jews, they want to continue James' mission. They want to convince other Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But the problem is they can't do this in the Holy Land because there are no Jews in the Holy Land anymore. They've been scattered. So these Jewish Christians, they scatter to wherever these Jews are, and they decide that, you know what, we need to do something a little bit different, because the second generation of Christians, they realize that the old arguments that the first generation used, they've kind of lost their luster. You can't go up to people anymore and say, hey, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. That one doesn't work anymore. So what they decide to do is they decide to Rethink, retool, and rebuild the Christian faith. And they use the destruction of Jerusalem as a way to rebrand the Christian message. And that's what this next part of the series is about, is the various ways that they start to rebrand the Christian message. One of the ways that they do this is through the creation of a gospel. Now, have you, what does the gospel mean? What does that word mean? Good news. Okay, so the gospel, though, even though it means good news, it essentially is a narrative story about Jesus' life, right? It's a story about his life. 
Who was the first person to write the gospel or the gospel that we have? Who's the first person? Mark. Mark. Mark's the first one. That's why we read Mark first. So Mark, he writes his gospel, and the reason why he does this is because he knows that the first generation is gone and that the second generation doesn't really know anything about Jesus' life. And so he feels that it's important that, this, that his, for his community that the second generation has a story of Jesus' life. But Mark does something more than just write a story about Jesus. He also tries to answer the question that was on all the Jews' minds at that time. And the question was, why didn't God send us the Messiah to save us when we were in trouble? That's the question, right? Mark's answer to that question is the reason why God didn't send the Messiah is because the Messiah already came and went. He was here 40 years ago. You just weren't paying attention. Now this is a really fascinating argument because what it does is it resets the foundation of how we even think about Jesus. So just think about this for a second, right? What's the Messiah supposed to do? What's my ad nauseum thing that I said all the time? What's he supposed to be? He's supposed to be a king who raises an army, right? And he's going to fight the powers of the Roman government, and then he's going to establish God's kingdom. That's the last thing that he does. But with the destruction of Jerusalem, can the Messiah do any of those things? There's nothing to be saved anymore. It's all gone. So your original vision of the Messiah, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't function anymore. There's nothing that you can do with that. So basically, the second generation, what they say is, hey, everything that you assume to be true about the Messiah is wrong. The Messiah was never supposed to be the king of the old Jerusalem. He was supposed to be the king of the new Jerusalem. Now, what's the new Jerusalem? This is different. Haven't heard about this one before, have we? This is where we have to turn to the book of Revelation. Okay, so Revelation. It's a very interesting book if you've ever read it before. But essentially, it's written to the churches that are in Asia. These are not churches that Paul founded. These are churches that were connected to the mother church in Jerusalem. Those are the people who founded that church. Okay? And you can imagine that when Jerusalem was destroyed and the mother church was destroyed, how did they feel? Were they happy about that? No, they were devastated. They were devastated. The author of the book of Revelation uses the destruction of the physical Jerusalem to say that when Jesus returns, he's going to bring with him the new Jerusalem. And when I say the new Jerusalem, I literally mean that a city is going to come down from the sky and land over top of the ruins of the old Jerusalem. Look at what it says right here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A city literally coming out of the sky. Okay. So in this way, the second generation of Christians, they are trying to update what failed the first generation of Christians. The first generation, what was their argument? Jesus is coming back any day now. You just got to be ready. He'll be here. And what happened? 
The first generation, after a while, because Jesus didn't come back, people started to abandon the church, right? Okay. So the second generation, this is what they say. The second generation, they say, hey, make no mistake about it. Jesus is the Messiah. The fact that Jerusalem was destroyed, that proves that Jesus was the Messiah. Because if he wasn't the Messiah, then God would have sent the real Messiah to save Jerusalem, and God didn't do that. So that's how you know that Jesus is the actual Messiah. You were just 40 years too late. But hey, don't worry about it, because Jesus is with God in heaven, and one day he's going to come back. We don't know when he's going to come back, but one day he will, and when he brings When he comes back and brings God's kingdom, he's also going to bring with him the new Jerusalem. Now, to you all, this might seem like a bit of an insignificant thing, right? I mean, here we are, it's 2,000 years later, Jerusalem is a totally different thing at this point, right? But at that time, this was a big deal. And this small revision to the Christian movement, this is a big reason why it ends up surviving in the way that it does. Okay, so follow me on this. Okay, reset, follow me here, because this is really the key to everything, okay? This idea that Jesus is going to come back and establish God's kingdom and bring with him the new Jerusalem means that Jesus is no longer simply a savior. Jesus is now a restorer. He's not just a savior anymore. He's a restorer. Jesus will restore Every good thing that has been lost. This idea that Jesus is a restorer, this is a game changer. Because if Jesus can restore Jerusalem, that means Jesus can restore you. And since Jesus is with God in heaven, you don't have to wait for Jerusalem to fall from the sky. Jesus can restore you right now. So in the Gospel of Mark, you know what he's doing? He goes from town to town and he's healing all these people, right? He goes into a town and he says, hey... I'm going to heal you. I'm going to do what you need. Jesus can do that for you right now. What does Jesus say in Revelation? See, I am making all things new. Now, I have to tell you that for me personally, I really find this idea of Jesus as a restorer to be one of the most beautiful notions in the entire Christian religion. For me, in my life, it speaks truth to who I am, which is that I am constantly in need of restoration. I don't know if you feel that way. I feel that way all the time. See, I know that I'm a broken person. I know that I have these fractures inside of me that need to be healed. And I have looked for healing in a variety of different places in my life. I've looked for healing in other people, I've gone to other people and said, can you heal me? I've looked for healing in material possessions. Oh, if I just buy this one thing, I'll feel so much better. I've looked for healing in substances. I've looked for healing inside of myself, saying you can heal yourself. And I will tell you that of all the remedies that I've tried, none have been as permanent and as healing as the restoration that is offered by Jesus. And I want to tell you why. You see, for me, when I read Jesus' words about God's unconditional love in the New Testament, when I read that, those create for me these intimate moments of healing in my life. Have you ever heard the parable of the prodigal son? 
You ever heard that before? Okay, if you haven't, let me just repeat it for you real quick so that we're all on the same page. Parable of prodigal son goes like this. There's a son. He goes to his father and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now, which is essentially like the son saying, I wish you were dead, Dad, because obviously, generally, he needs to be dead to get the inheritance, right? So the father, he has to go through all of this effort. If he was wealthy and had a lot of land, he'd have to sell off land. It's this big effort to get all this money for his son. He gives the money to his son. His son goes off into a foreign land and he lives a party lifestyle. He sleeps with prostitutes, he drinks a lot, he eats a lot, and then one day, he runs out of money, and he's starving to death, and he thinks to himself, you know what, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to beg forgiveness of my father, and maybe he'll let me be one of my father's servants, he'll let me be a slave. So he starts walking back to his dad, and when he's a little ways off, a servant sees him and tells the dad, and the dad runs out and embraces his son. And he said, I missed you, son. I'm glad you're back. You were lost, and now you've been found. My favorite parable. I love that parable. And the reason I love it so much is because I often imagine myself as the prodigal son. Turning around, walking back to God, and God waiting there with outstretched arms saying to me, I missed you, son. Welcome home. I love you. And I'll never turn my back on you. I must think about that parable three or four times a week. And it's healed numerous cracks in my soul. I have rarely met anyone, in fact, I've never met anyone in my time on this earth who didn't need restoration. And so I can say with pretty much absolute assurance that everybody in here probably needs restoration on some level or another. And if you're anything like me, you've probably looked for that in a variety of different places. Most of those are just temporary. And they're not going to fully heal the brokenness inside of you. So my prayer for you this morning is that you might be willing to open yourself to the restoration that Jesus offers us. I hope that you would open your Bible and read about God's words of, un- of, of Jesus' words of God's unconditional love for us. Because those words, they can heal you. They can mend that brokenness inside of you. And when Jesus says he's making all things new, that is absolutely and completely true. Jesus is the great restorer. You just have to open yourself to that possibility. May that be so for you in your life. And may you be restored in your soul. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.